0: Friends, while they receive the offering, go ahead and open up your Bibles. Open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. We have been in 1 Samuel now. We started a series a few weeks ago uh, called Kingdom Come. And we're looking at the, the beginning, the roots of the kingdom of the nation of Israel. Right? The nation of Israel was not always a kingdom. Right? They chose to become a kingdom. After a season of time of having judges that ruled them over many, 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 many years, they said, we don't want judges anymore. We want a king to rule us. We don't, we don't want God. We want a king to rule us. We want to be like the other nations, the nations around us. That's what we want to be like. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the life of the first king. His name is Saul. Saul is the first king of the nation of Israel. And from the very first moment we see Saul, we see a deep flaw within him. There is a deep flaw that drives and produces all kinds of sin in the life of Saul. All from this one single flaw. And we've looked at it over the past two weeks, and now this morning we're going to look at it even a little bit more, a little bit deeper. And that flaw is what we've called the fear of man. The fear of man. Saul is afraid of other human beings. Um, there's a couple fears that we've looked at, all, all different forms of the fear of man. The fear of man takes many different forms, many different forms. And the first one we looked at is the fear of our inadequacies being exposed. A few weeks ago, we looked at that idea. What, what happens if people find out that I'm not good enough? What happens if people find out that I'm actually not good enough to be king? What happens if people find out that I'm not the world's best boss? Or I'm not the world's greatest dad or mom? What, what happens when people find out that I'm actually not as good as they think I am? That's a fear that drives us to hide things in our lives. And as we hide those things, we cover them with sin. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Last week we talked about the fear of of what may happen, what we believe is going to happen. Our minds instantly go to worst case scenario. We think, man, this person's going to do this or this is going to happen to me in this way. Um, And we fear what might happen. And that drives an action. If we are not super careful, we talked about this last week, if we're not super careful, that action is more often than not is a sinful action. This morning we're going to look at another form of the fear of man that we see in the life of Saul. And this form of the fear of man is the fear of disappointing others. The fear of disappointing others. Now the reality is you fear this. You fear this. I fear this. If you, if you, if you don't fear this, there's something wrong. Here. I mean, if you enjoy disappointing others, right? Like that's, that's like, that's like your thing. You're like, man, I love disappointing people. I love to build up their expectations as high as I can get them, and then just, like, kick them out from underneath them. Like, I love that. It's so much fun. Like, there's something wrong with you that needs to be addressed. We can, like, talk after this. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes disappointing others, right? That's, that's a hard thing for us to do. It's a hard thing to disappoint other people. We've created all kinds of, of ways to gently or remove the, the blow of disappointing people, right? Right? Um, Maybe your strategy, you go into with a strategy of, I mean, I'm gonna say like five nice things about them, and then I'm gonna kind of deliver the bad news, right? I'm gonna talk about how amazing they are, how talented they are, how smart they are, how beautiful they are, and then I'm gonna be like, and then there's this thing. Uh, right? that, maybe that's your strategy. Maybe your strategy is to really kind of shift the attention and the blame back onto yourself, right? This is like the age old high school dating strategy uh, where it's like, you know what? I don't wanna be with you anymore. I don't really like being with you, but really it's not you, it's, it's me, right? It's, it's not you, it's me, right? I, like, you're not the problem, I'm the problem, right? We're just lessening that, that blow a little bit. Or maybe your strategy is to uh, quickly offer some sort of compensation for this disappointment, right? I know I missed your Little League baseball game, but don't worry, we're going to go get ice cream, so it's all good, right? Um, hey, I know that meeting was really, really important, and I, and I, I blew it, I wasn't I wasn't prepared, but don't worry, I, I owe you one. I owe you one. I'm gonna get you back for that. Don't even worry about it, right? Maybe that's your strategy for lessening the blow. But here's the thing in all of these different strategies, doesn't matter which one you prefer, prefer the, the goal is actually not to lessen it for the other person, it's to lessen it for you. It's to lessen it for you. You see, disappointing others cuts us. Often it cuts us more than it hurts them. Disappointing others is, is affects us often more than it actually affects the other person. And so we try to lessen that blow for us. And this fear is a fear that grows over the course of our life. It's different than a lot of fears. You see, every single one of us in this room has memories in our minds that are kind of burnt in there. They're super crisp. They're super clear when we have disappointed someone and it hurt us to disappoint them. You have that memory. You have multiple memories like that. My first boss, his name was Tim. And I deeply respected Tim, and I still do. Tim is a great friend. I deeply respect him. I trust him. He's just a great man. And I, want, I wanted Tim's approval. I really, I really wanted Tim to be proud of me. And in one of our first like, kind of work outings, we went to a conference together. And we, stayed, we all stayed in the hotel and we, we went and we checked into this hotel and um, we were all in the lobby and we've got all our bags there and we've got our room keys. And, and Tim goes to the bathroom or something, I don't know where I remember where we went, and, I, and he leaves his room key sitting right there. And I think, you know, this is, this is like, I'm like 23, okay? I'm like, man, how amazing is this? Like, think about all the things we can do to Tim. And so I snag his room key. I'm thinking, man, this is gonna be this is gonna be hilarious, right? So Tim comes back and he's like, he gets his stuff and we all go to our rooms and then Tim comes back and he's like, dude, I can't get in my room. Has anybody anybody see my room key? You guys, you know where my room keys at? Everyone's like, no, no, no. He's like, Josh, have you seen my room key? My like, room key? No, oh, my room key. Oh, wait No, no room keys here. Um, and so Tim gets another room key and gets into his room and everything's fine. Everything's great. And then at 1.30 in the morning, we find his room key. And we come in, we like, tie him up in his own sheets, and we're jumping on the bed. We're in Raffhausen, and we're, It's like amazing. It's just fun. It's good. It's playful. And the next day, Tim's like, Josh, did you have my room key? I'm like, yeah, I had your room key. It's like, but you told me you didn't have my room key. It's like, well, well yeah, yeah. But it's like, no, 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 you, you lied to me. And I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget those words. This thing that we were doing in jest and in fun had hurt my brother, and I had disappointed him. And and even though it's small, it seems small, it's just like burned into my brain. I remember it like it was yesterday that I had disappointed my friend. We all have these memories. And in fact, the reality is that for most of us, our memories are actually much darker the memories of, of disappointment, I have other memories that are far more worse than that. Where I've disappointed far, people far more than I disappointed Tim that day. And they're deep scars from those, from those moments. Deep memories that, that I'll live with for the rest of my life. And you have these too. You see, this fear is a fear that grows over time. Most fears in life you begin to uh, walk free of. You grow out of them, right? So the, the fear of the boogeyman. Most adults don't have, okay? The fear of what goes bump in the night is not something that we're, as adults, we're constantly worrying about. It's kind of like, oh, it's, it's, just, it's just the wind. We, we, can, we can mentally process those things easier because we have the experience um, that, that has told us that it's just not what we actually feared when we were four years old. But this fear is different. Each time we experience one of these disappointments where we've disappointed someone else and it's cut us we have these, this bank of memories that's grown over time, more and more and more on top of each other, and the fear has actually grown. Whether you realize it or not, this fear is a fear that has grown for you, not decreased. And we've said all along in this series over the past few weeks, where the fear of man increases, the fear of God decreases. And where the fear of God decreases, sin abounds. And so if we are not extremely, extremely careful, we will walk in this fear every single day of our lives. But I don't believe we have to. I don't believe we have to. I believe that we can, we will never, we'll never escape not wanting to disappoint someone. That, that is just the rea- That would be unhuman to enjoy disappointing people. But I think that we can not enjoy disappointing people and yet not fear it at the same time. But we are going to need the help of God in order to get there. And so let's look at our text together. So our text, uh, 1 Samuel 15. First um, Samuel 15, if you didn't bring a Bible, I'm a, did I say this earlier? If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue Bible underneath seat you're in, sitting in. You can pull that out. First Samuel 15 is on page 263 in that blue Bible, 263. So th- here's what happens in 1 Samuel 15. God... Uh, goes to Saul, King Saul, king of the nation of Israel, and he gives him a commandment. He says, Here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's a specific commandment. And, and the, really, we see the commandment in verse 3. It says this Now go and strike Amalek, which is a city, and devote it to destruction. And all that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Kill them all, God says. God says, I don't want the Amalekites to exist on the face of the earth anymore. And Saul, you are my king. I want you to go and destroy them. I want you to go wipe them off the face of the earth. They have brought sin against me and they brought sin against the people. They've been, they've been a thorn in the side of Israel for too long. And so Saul does, verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Habilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Okay. Pop quiz, right? Pop quiz. It's a simple question. Simple question. Did Saul do what God told him to do? Did Saul do what God told him to do? How many of you in the room would say, yes, Saul did what God told him to do? How many are like, yes, he did? Okay. Nobody or you're afraid to raise your hand. Um, how many of you would say, how many would say uh, Saul did not do what God told him to do? How many would say God, Saul did not do? Okay. Some of you are still afraid to raise your hand. But everybody would say he did not do what God told him to do. And you would be correct. I know I went to seminary, so I know things like that. No, no, it's easy, right? It's simple. You don't, he clearly did not do what God told him to do. And so what is God's response to this? Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. This is what he says, what God says. I regret, your Bible might say I repent, that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. God says, I, 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 regret, that I, ever made the, I regret that I ever made him king, for he has not performed my commandments. Those are important words, right? Those are important words. He has not performed my commandments. And so what we see is God saying, no, 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 he has not done what I commanded him to do. And we all saw that already. You all raised your hand. You said, well, well, yeah, clearly he has not done what God commanded him to do. But what we're going to see as this goes on, as as this chapter goes on, is that Saul's going to make the case, no, 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 I, I did what God told me to do. I, I did what he told me to do. And friends, I'm going to make the case that you and I do this all the time. We do this all the time. With, with not just with God, but with our, with our boss, with our spouse, with our kids, with our parents. We are constantly doing, living in disobedience, but convincing ourselves and trying to convince them that we've actually been obedient, that we've actually done the thing that we've been told to do. We, we do this all of the time. But here's what you must understand before we go any farther, that there is no such thing as partial obedience. It doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. You cannot be partially obedient. You either are obedient or you're not obedient. God does not go to Saul and say, Hey, dude, Saul, like, nice work. Like, you destroyed the city. You burnt it to the ground. You killed all those people. I mean, there's a few things that you missed. There's a few things. But overall... Good job. Like overall, you you pretty much did it. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I regret that I ever made you king. You you have not performed my commandments. You have not done what I asked you to do. Period. There is no gray here for God. But for you and for me, we always create gray. We always say, no, no, no. I I actually did do it. I I did perform what you wanted me to do. I did do it, right? When God says, or when Jesus tells us the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, you'd say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's what I do. Do you, though? Like, do do you? Like, like with all of your heart, you love God. There's nothing in your life, there's never anything in your life, that has crept up on your list of loves that has surpassed God. You've never loved yourself more than God. You've never loved anything in the world more than God. Is, is that true? There's nothing in your mind that you love more than God. There's nothing in your mind that has, that has pulled you away from Him. There's nothing that you've ever thought of that would be in contrary to Him because you love Him with all of your mind. Not part of it, all of it. Of course it's not true. course it's not true, but we convince ourselves that it is, that we have lived lives of obedience when in reality, no, 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 we have not, there is no gray, there is no partial obedience when we do this all of the time, we do this all of the time, but the truth is we have not performed what he commanded us to, we have not, it's true with your spouse, it's true with your kids, it's true true with your boss, it's just true, there's no gray here. And so let's not look for gray. But that's what Saul is going to do. Look at what Saul does. Um, In verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. Listen to the language that Saul says. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done it i performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said to him, what then is the bleeding, I love this line, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Right, so Saul, Samuel comes to Saul and Saul sees him coming. He's like, blessed are you. Let's party. Let's have a great time because I've com- completed what God commanded me to do. It's accomplished. It's finished. Let's, let's celebrate. And Samuel's like, dude, there's ox and sheep, everywhere, that weren't here before. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you know what you did. You're like, what sheep? No, 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 I did what I commanded to do. It's all good. It seems like, what is wrong with you? And so Saul then goes on to justify this. He justifies this. He says it this way in verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. If you have kids, you know, you, you know what Samuel's going through here. Where you're like, dude, 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 why didn't you do what I told you to do? And your kid's like, no, 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 I did. Like, I did this thing, I did this thing, I did this thing, I did this thing. He's like, no, 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 no you didn't do what I told you to do. And they're like, no, 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 I did do what you told me to do. Look, I did all of these things. And you're like, no, you did not. Like, well, you're not hearing me. It's like not computing. Saul's like, no, no, no but, but my brother did that. Like, the people, they did, they did that stuff. I didn't do that stuff. And Samuel's response is the same response as every parent. Like, the next word out of his mouth is, stop. Just Stop. Talking, I'm going to tell you what God told me to tell you. And Saul says, go ahead and speak. Go ahead and tell me. And so Samuel begins to unpack what God has said. And he begins to ask Saul, why did you do these things? Why, why didn't you listen to the Lord? Look at verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pronounce, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was Evil in the sight of the Lord. To disobey God is evil in his sight. It's evil. That's, you, might, you might say, man, it's harsh language. All he did was take some sheep and some oxen. Like, it's not that big of a deal. No, no, no. To disobey the Lord is evil in his sight. And look at Saul's response still. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Lord. Now, a minute ago, when we all raised our hands, we said he hadn't. And he's still saying, No, 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 I, I did. And then he's going to say something that, that's not true. He has not. But now he's going to start speaking some truth. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. True. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites. True. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. That's true. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the beasts of the, the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. That's also true. It's true. Saul, in telling the truth, is declaring a lie. It's the craziest thing. It's the craziest thing. And this is what the fear of man, and really the fear of disappointing man, does to us. In the fear of disappointing the people, Saul creates this lie. He's like, he's, he's, he disobeys God. He disobeys God in a fear of disappointing people. He's like, they, they want these bulls and these sheep and these oxen. They're like, hey, let's get Agag the king. We'll parade him around. He's like, ah, I don't want to disappoint them. Okay, let's do that. And then in the fear of disappointing Samuel, he says, no, 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 no. Samuel, let's party. Like, I've, I've fulfilled the commandment of the Lord. And like, no, you haven't. And then he's driven to this place where all of these compounding fears and disobedience and lies have brought him to a place where he's truly unable to confess. He's unable to confess because at this point he's in so deep. This fear of man is so unbelievably deep. In order to confess, he has to confess to multiple layers of sin. And so he is convincing himself, I have obeyed the commandment of the Lord. Listen to all I've done. I went on the mission that he told me to go on. It's true. I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, which is, which is true, he did. But that's why he's in trouble. That's what he did wrong. And he's, he's putting it into, this is what God told, God told me to do this. He's convincing himself. He's convincing himself that it's God Fault. He's convincing himself that I have done nothing wrong when it's clear to everyone that he has. This is what the fear of man does to us it drives us into this dark place of hiding our sin, a dark place of just deception, even to ourselves. But Samuel. Thank God for Samuel. Samuel does not let up. In fact, he just turns up the heat a little bit. Samuel says this in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does God delight in uh, your sacrifice and your good deeds and, and all these offerings that you're extending to him more than he delights in the obedience of his voice and listening to him? No. Isaiah says our most righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. What Samuel is saying to to Saul is you cannot buy God. You you can't purchase God's favor. All of these great things that you've done, you've got all these animals that you're going to sacrifice to him. But Saul is saying, look at all I've done. I've done all these things for God. God. I've done the things that he's asked me to do. How could you possibly be angry with me? Look at all the good stuff I've done. There's no such thing as partial obedience. It doesn't matter how many good things you stack up, you've still done evil before God in your disobedience. He's sinned against God. He's sinned against the people. He's sinned against Samuel. He's trying to justify this thing in his own mind. He's trying to justify it to Samuel, and and he's so afraid of being wrong. And Samuel's trying to explain to him: No, 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 it does not matter how many good things you've done. It doesn't matter how many check boxes you've checked off. He said, "I've read my Bible every day, but I go to church." It doesn't matter. You can't buy God. You've sinned. You've disobeyed. John Owen, the great theologian, says it this way. He says, The goal of the Christian life is not external conformity or mindless action. It doesn't matter what you do. But passionate love for God, informed by the mind and embraced by the will. Embraced by the will. This love of Christ that drives us to a greater obedience A love for God and a love for Christ that drives us to a place where we fear God and fear disappointing Him and and not obeying Him more than we fear man and disobeying man. And Saul breaks, but not completely. Saul says to Samuel in verse 24, He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. And then he says this. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul confesses, but it's not actually a real confession. He confesses. He says, okay, okay, listen, listen I, I, I disobeyed. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I, I was afraid of the people, and so I disobeyed God, and I obeyed them instead. So now, here's what he says in the, in the next line. He quickly says, now, verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return me that I may worship the Lord. He says, restore me. Just forgive me. Let's forget about this. Let's move on. Let's just move on from all of this. We don't, we don't, need, to, we don't need to dwell in this anymore. I, I confess I was wrong. Now pardon my sin and let's, let's make me right before the Lord. But Samuel doesn't let up. Verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to you, a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. That last line, who's better than you, is the ultimate blow for Samuel. The deep fear of Samuel, this fear of man, this, this idea, he's so afraid, he's so afraid, he's so afraid that he might not be good enough. He's so afraid of disappointing people that there might be somebody better than him. That last line, the kingdom is going to be given to somebody better than you. Christ crushes him. That crushes somebody who's walking in the fear of man. But Samuel doesn't care. Samuel doesn't care. He pulls out the sledgehammer and just smacks Saul with it. I'm not going to restore you to a right relationship with God. Why would he do that? Why would Samuel? Here's Saul crying. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. I see what I did. I'm sorry. But Samuel's like, No. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. Why would Samuel do that? I said at the beginning of all of this that nobody enjoys, nobody delights in disappointing others. And so far, Saul's been the one who's been disappointing, right? Saul's the one who's disappointed God. He's disappointed Samuel. He's disappointed the people. But now Samuel's going to disappoint Saul. No one delights in that. But sometimes people choose it for a greater good. Sometimes people choose it for a greater good. You think about the social worker at the hospital whose job it is to go tell the family that their loved one didn't make it. They don't delight in that. They don't rejoice. They don't skip down the hall and say, I can't wait. But they choose that job because they know that they can quickly be the one to extend kindness and mercy and comfort and grace into their lives. If they're the ones that deliver the bad news, they can be the ones that bring comfort in the good. What Samuel knows is that what Saul wants is a quick, cheap grace. He wants quick, cheap grace. I see what I did. I'm sorry. Okay, let's just, let's just get over this and let's move on. And Samuel says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. You need to live in this for a while. You need to mourn your sin because blessed are those who mourn. You need to mourn your sin. You need to live in the pain of this sin. You need to experience the weight of this brokenness. You need to understand what is being the punishment and what's being taken away from you in this before you are even ready to come to a place of repentance and restoration. You need to understand, this is going to take you some time, Saul. It's going to take you some time. And so rather than extending cheap, quick grace and saying, it's okay, it's all right, which is what we do out of a fear of man, by the way. No, it's okay, don't worry about it, bro. It's all good, we're fine. Out of a fear of man, we make it okay when it's really not okay. Samuel says, I will not fear you, Saul. I will not extend you cheap grace because there's a greater, fuller grace that awaits those who mourn their sin, confess that sin, are brought to a true, full, complete repentance. And only then can we be brought to a true, complete, full restoration and renewal. We must be a people who go through a process of grieving sin. But in the fear of man, we want quick, cheap grace. And in the fear of man, we are quick to extend quick, cheap grace. But thank the Lord for Samuels. We need Samuels in our life. People who will hold us to a higher standard and uh, hold us to a higher level of accountability and who will not extend that cheap grace so quickly but will wait for a greater grace. They know, they know that there's a greater grace for those who are brought, brought to a true repentance rather than a quick and cheap repentance. Oh, that you would have a Samuel in your life. I believe That when we fear disappointing God more than we fear disappointing man, let me say that again. I believe that when we fear disappointing, when we fear disobeying God, when we fear disobeying God more than we fear disappointing men, we can actually live free of this fear of man. We can get to the place where we don't live in fear of disappointing others, but rather willingly lean in to others' disappointment in order to bring them to greater Obedience. I think of that story I told you earlier with Tim. Tim, in the fear of man, could have ignored it. And most people would have, even though he was hurt by my lie, most people would have ignored it. They would have never brought it up. They would have never addressed it because they're too afraid. I don't want to deal with the drama. I don't want to deal with the sorrow. I don't want to deal with the pain. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to hurt my brother. Most people would have, would have just let it go. But Tim says, I will not fear men. I'm going to bring Josh to a greater place of grace and a greater place of obedience. Because what does the Lord delight in? Obedience. This is what Samuel's trying to do for Saul. This is what Tim did for me that day. We can be a people who lean into others' diso- disappointment in order to bring them to a greater obedience. But in order to do that, we need a greater king. If all the people in our lives are like Saul and most of them are most of them most of the people that we know most of us in this room live in the fear of man. We're afraid to disappoint our brothers, we're afraid to disappoint our sisters, we're afraid of what they might say, we're afraid of what they might think. We don't want to say that we don't want to speak truth into their life. We need a greater example. We need a greater king. We need one that we can look to, that we can follow, that we can ascribe our life to and say, man, that's what I want to be like. I want to be like that king. We need a king who's truly, fully obedient. Obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross, as Paul writes in Philippians 2. We need Jesus, who knows that his death on the cross, being obedient to death, is going to disappoint many people. In order to be nailed on the cross, He must watch his mother wail with sorrow. He must see the tears of his friends. He must listen to their cries. And he must ultimately watch them turn their backs on him in in fear of man now that this one who has been their rock is no longer. He knows what it's going to cost his friends, he knows the disappointment it's going to bring to their lives. But he chooses obedience to God over fear of disappointing his friends and those that he deeply loves. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't love them any less. It does not mean that he loves his mother any less or his friends any less. It means that he loves God completely with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. He loves him all the way. Full obedience. This is the king we need. That's the king that that we must crave. That's the king that we must follow and say, lead me into obedience. Show me the way. Teach me how to obey, how how to fear disobeying God more than I fear disappointing men. Here's the reality, friends. I believe that every single time people are disappointed, good can come from that. There can be restoration and confession and this, this, a deepening of relationship. Tim and I are best friends today. And I would never, ever, ever, ever tell the smallest little lie to Tim. Ever. And he's taught me to guard my mind and to guard those things that even when I'm playing a prank, I must walk in obedience to God. That doesn't mean I don't play pranks prank, sorry. I'm gonna tell you. Um, but I must walk in obedience to God even as i do and so good will all cannot can always come from disappointing people but good can never come from disobeying god it can't the disobedience to god will always bring ruin and pain and sorrow to the people in our lives but disappointing them in obedience to god will always bring good Disappointing people in obedience to God will always bring good. Choosing to obey God rather than fearing man will always bring good, but choosing to disobey God will never bring good to your life. We must follow this King who is obedient. We must guard our lives each and every single day. We must look around and say, What am I fearing? Who am I fearing? Who am I afraid to disappoint? We must begin to speak truth into each other's lives. We must be quick to confess and slow to accept cheap grace. Let us follow the example of our King, Christ. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for the example of Saul. I thank you for the example of Samuel, who did not fear the great king of Israel, but feared God in a right and good way. He spoke into his life, and he declared what was true. He did, not, he did not offer cheap grace, but he brought Saul to a place of true, complete repentance where the fullness of grace is found. And I pray that we would see that and we would know that. We have a greater king who in order to bring that fullness of grace, gave up his life and chose to disappoint those whom he loves in order to obey the God of all things. This is never an easy choice. There'll never be a moment in our life where where it's easy. It's always painful. It's always hard. And the more serious the sin that we have to lean into, the more serious the disappointment that we have to lean into, the harder it is. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us righteousness. I pray these things in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus, amen.